I'm on down. The weather, the water's fine. Um, here at the Catbird seat at Tufts University, Curtis Hall, overlooking the entrance to that great and august institution, namely Tufts University, that center of intellectual development um, and uh, the incubator of the future rulers of America, if you will. What is on your mind this afternoon? I'm doing an open line segment here, so whatever you want to talk about within the bounds of good taste, you're welcome to do it. Of course, this uh, being Tufts University, it's a college station. We have to respect a certain amount of uh, what we might call euphemistically in loco parentis, um, you know, which in, in modern terms means you can say about just about anything you want, um, including the use of virtual profanity when it comes to criticizing anybody who doesn't genuflect to the left. But if you are conservative, you can't talk about the three big subjects, and that is you cannot talk about ethnic or racial background, you can't talk about women, and you can't talk about sexuality. Other than that, welcome aboard. So, um, I, you know, being the, uh, what you might call the lone conservative voice on a liberal college campus, and possibly one of the only on a liberal college campus in America, um, I feel that it, I, I need to address um, an issue that um, is becoming more apparent to the rest of us out here, us lumpen proletariats, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, what did Hillary Clinton call us? The uh, basket of deplorables. And that is this uh, enormous phenomena of fake news. Now, I'm not suggesting that there hasn't always been fake news. I mean, part of our job, in a sense, as citizens is to get to the truth. That's why we have a First Amendment. And that includes those who are, are the guarders of the gateway of information. Are they telling us the truth? I mean, I think it's safe to say that back in the day when there was only three networks, before there was internet, before there was cable, um, before there was all of these amazing means of communication, you had Uncle Walter Cronkite pontificating every day and telling us that that's the way it is. I never liked him anyway, but a recent book about him by, um, I think it's, what's his name, Bob, Doug, Doug, Brinkley, Doug uh, Brinkley, I think, uh, talks about, you know, he kind of spills the beans on how left-wing Cronkite really was and that his political views tainted his, his, uh, his reportage. Uh, not that it was left-wing, of course, but it was left-leaning. It was establishment left, which is what this nation is, at least in our elites. The fact of the matter is that most of us are not. Most of us out here in the real world who are having jobs and paying taxes and raising our own families, we're more conservative. You know, even if we think we're liberal, we're more conservative. You know, I look at, I have relatives who are, consider themselves to be very much on the left. And they go out of their way to make noises that are left wing. But when you look at their life, it's conservative. You know, they've been married for 40 years. 
They brought up three children. They own a little home in the suburbs. They have a, you know, mutual funds and stock and retirement. They've never done anything in their life that really doesn't sort of represent genuine conservative values. Um, so, I mean, I would argue that America is a conservative nation. Um, you know, we are a nation of individuals. We're a nation of entrepreneurs and creators and inventors and thinkers. And uh, as such, we're not interested in leftist false narratives, which, are, which by nature are fake because they're not natural. They don't comport with what is best for humanity, what is, uh, you know, self-interest and, uh, you know, the free exchange of goods and services and ideas and, uh, and uh, institutions that promote freedom like private property ownership. And faith in, in a creator of the universe who is the source of law and who is the giver of law as opposed to the state. You know, we, um, you know, we believe in our families. We, we, we believe in ourselves and our families first as sovereign under God. We give a limited grant of power to the state, which acts in a negative sense as a means to protect our rights, not as a, as a creator of rights. Those are the premises by which America is built, and those are conservative ideas. So when I talk about fake news by the elites, which are not who, of whom are not conservative generally, it's not something that's new, but it's something that's become more pronounced than ever, and more dangerous, I would argue, to our freedoms, and more subversive and more disloyal to the American ideals than I think it's been in any time since I can remember. And I've been around a while. And that is since the election of Donald J. Trump as President of the United States. I've never seen such an effort to discredit, delegitimize, and ultimately destroy Trump's presidency. They want to take him out. And if they can't take him out physically... They want to make him so irrelevant in terms of his ability to function as president and to do his job that he'll just be uh, kind of there as a laughingstock. You know, they want to take him out one way or the other. And they've been willing to lie and create these false stories as the means to do it. You know, this uh, we hear a lot about the so-called false narrative, well, that's the exact tactic that the left is using now to try to slow Trump down, if not destroy him. And, you know, when I say false narrative, they, they're able to get away with it because they've got so many people in high places, the millionaires and the billionaires, as Elizabeth Warren would call them, all, most of whom are on the left, and these sort of establishment types, including Republican establishment types, who are willing to play along because they all are concerned about what President Trump, not only who he is as a man, but what he represents, the movement that he's unleashing. And by the way, I think that it's a movement that will continue even if they do take Trump out. 
And I think that there's a good likelihood that they probably will, because when you take a look at the forces that he's up against, it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty scary. I mean, these people are not going to tolerate what President Trump is trying to do. So we need to realize that this is a movement and that whether or not Donald Trump is right now the man alone standing up at bat, getting ready to swing at the ball. And he represents all of us when he does so, including people who don't like him. But if and when he is struck out, we have to be ready to send up another batter. We have to be able to move the ball forward because what he has released is something that is returning our society, our nation, our individual lives back to an equilibrium. He is riding the ship of state, which has been listing for a long time. Uh, you know, th- th- he's a type of person that comes along once in a generation, once in several generations. He's like the Alexander Hamilton of our time. Uh, you know, he is the George Washington of our time, the Abraham Lincoln of our time. You know, I, I, I really feel that way. Not, you know, putting aside who he may be personally, that's beside the point. There is something about him. I mean, he's really out there to do it. He's, uh, he's, he's, he has a vision as a businessman, and he's determined to, to carry it through. It's incredible. Amazing. But he is up against just the usual rabble, but he, they are more shrill now, more dishonest, more hysterical than ever because of the fact that it's not just, this isn't, we're not talking here about Richard Nixon. We're not even talking about Ronald Reagan, whom they despised, or George W. Bush. Donald Trump is a whole different breed. They don't quite know what to do. So what they're doing is they create these false narratives and they push them out as a means of creating propaganda in the classic communist sense. I mean, this is like the days of the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, frankly. You know, where you have these socialistic establishments that are trying to create new realities. They'll push these things out even though they know they're not true. Because they just need to keep the, the fire going. They need to keep people's eye off the ball. And that's exactly how they are playing this game. Um, I'll give a couple of examples of how the left is using false narrative. The most obvious and the most famous one is the Trump-Russia story. Donald Trump's campaign somehow conspired with the, Soviet, with the Russians under Putin, whom they demonize, to win the election, right? Um, and they are going to call for investigators, and, and you know now they've got a special prosecutor, and there's nothing, nothing to it. There's no proof of it. There's even, the, they, they've tried to focus in on a couple of Trump... Uh, campaign people like Paul Manafort um, who had foreign you know, contracts with not so much Russia, I think Ukraine. In the case of Manafort, I think it was actually Turkey, which, you know, it's kind of a shady business, but it's something that, that happens on all sides. <laughs> I mean, who was it during the, um, the, the Obama years who had a contract with, I think it was Qatar, 
Um, was it John Podesta? I don't. I don't know. It was a, one of those guys. A ploof, I think it was. He was taking huge amounts of money from them. Um, it's how things are done, unfortunately. But there's nothing illegal about it. There may be some moral questions around it, but they did nothing illegal. But somehow they're trying to spin that into proof that because these people um, had brief associations with Trump, therefore, the conspiracy theory goes, Trump is in the pocket of the Russians. Um, The other thing that they're working on, I've been listening to a lot of talk radio recently, uh, Rachel Maddow is on this thing like a like a bulldog chewing a piece of meat. Um, that Donald Trump has financial dealings with the Russians. That apparently there was a Russian bank that helped him him and his son-in-law Jared Kushner uh, bail out a hotel property in Canada. Nothing illegal about that. That's nobody's business. It's a private. It's a private company. Could you say that therefore the Russians might influence? Trump is a president? I suppose you could. And it's not, I don't think it's a good thing. It's, you know, it's not as bad as Hillary Clinton allowing a Russian front company to buy American uranium. And, uh, you know, which is a national security question in exchange for who knows how much money going to the Clinton Foundation and Bill Clinton going to Russia and getting a, a half a million dollar speaking fee for, for a trip there. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, there are questions around the wisdom of that. Nothing illegal, though. But they're going to continue to pound at that, and they're going to continue to spin it. And uh, unfortunately, Donald Trump, under the kind of pressure that he's under, which is unbelievable, he has, you know, they're playing rope-a-dope, and he has taken the bait on a couple of occasions. Um... I think the first one was when he fired um, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, which he should not have done. He should have kept Flynn. Now it turns out that Flynn's trip to Russia was authorized by the Obama administration. They need to explain that. Um, When they talk about the Russians hacking the DNC, turns out the Obama administration knew about this and did nothing. Um, I I would argue and I would think, and again, I have no proof at all, but the official reports are that um, Obama did nothing because he figured that Hillary would win. And I think everybody did, including the Russians, probably. So he decided to do nothing about it. I would even suggest, I mean, since they're making all these wild and woolly accusations, why not me, this... You know, for Brent, a little talk show host sitting up here in in Tufts, I'll say, I'll throw out one. How about the possibility that uh, Obama and Hillary and the rest of them thought the Russians were working for them? Now, I don't know if the Russians were working for either side. I don't know if the Russians were doing much of anything. Who knows? But um, it seems to me that Hillary would have been their natural person more than Trump. Putting aside the fact that she's on the left, uh, she's also someone that they could blackmail. You know, Trump might have had some shady business deals. Who knows? But Hillary, with the uranium deal and with other stuff, that's those are those are those are potential crimes. Those are situations by which 
she could be put in prison for a long time. She could she could be found guilty of treason. She could be executed for that. You know, giving the the, the Russians, I think it was something like twenty percent of America's uranium supply. What is uranium for, if not the development of nuclear bombs? You ever hear of the Rosenbergs? I mean, this stuff is big time. You know, evil doing, frankly. So I would think that the Russians, if they wanted to get one or two, uh, one or the other of the candidates in, they probably would have bet we're backing her. And some of this information about Russia hacking into uh, state elections, guess what? So far, the states that they've they, they hacked into that we know about are states that Hillary carried, like Illinois. So who were they really helping? I don't know. Uh, seems like it might have been her. So getting back, this is a false narrative, this idea that Trump has a connection to the Russians. Trump fell for it. He's, you know, Jeff Sessions, his attorney general, should never have recused himself from meeting with the Russian ambassador, which is something that is a normal activity for any senator to do, especially when you're the head of the House, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He meets with the heads of state of all countries. Did nothing wrong by meeting the Russian ambassador. They all met with the Russian ambassador at both sides. But he, you know, by recusing himself, it was like giving more credence to this false narrative. And then, of course, you had the firing of James Comey, the uh, head of the FBI, something that the left had been clamoring for for a long time. Um, Comey, of course, then tried to, um, you know, a disgruntled former employee. He then he then uh, tries to get Trump Im- Im- embroiled um, by by saying that uh, you know Trump had suggested that he he um, he squelch an investigation, which Comey himself contradicted on the stand under testimony, knowing that Trump. And his attorneys were watching, and that he could be charged with uh, with perjury himself if he lied about that. So he admitted the truth, which is that there was no attempt by Trump to quash an investigation. There was a private, casual conversation over dinner where Trump asked Comey if they could maybe ease up a little bit on on uh, General Flynn because Flynn's life has already been destroyed. He's already been forced to resign and. You know, it wasn't not investigate him. It was just maybe call off some of the witch hunt, essentially. Perfectly normal thing to talk about. It was, wasn't, there was nothing that actually affected any investigation. But, of course, this is now being called obstruction of justice, which is a word that they keep repeating day after day, several times a day. Obstruction of justice, obstruction of justice, obstruction of justice. And then, of course... Uh, Comey also casually mentioned that that former Attorney General Loretta Lynch had asked him to to re, re, uh, rebrand, if you will, um, a um, the the claim that Hillary Clinton was being investigated. Instead, call it a matter that actually may be obstruction of justice, or it certainly is closer to it. And she could very well be involved in that and the tarmac visit by Clinton, followed by her giving a, being given a pass. Those things very well may be 
or certainly are more likely closer to uh, trying to obstruct an investigation or obstruction of justice. And let's hope that uh, now that the, uh, the the wheels are, now that the, uh, the tables are being turned, we're going to take a look at Loretta Lynch and her involvement in a possible obstruction of justice, and maybe even Barack Obama and his knowledge of the Russian hack and why he didn't do anything about it. I mean, all of this stuff, let's not forget, happened while Barack Obama was president, and it happened before the election. So, you know, this is really, I mean, Trump was not in a position to to do anything about it. Um, so there you have a false narrative. That's what I mean by false narrative. This is something that the left is going to keep alive. Trump and Russia, Trump and Russia day after day, even though they, they have nothing there after a year of investigating. And they are just, you know, it's just politics. They're just, uh, they're doing it as a way to um, keep in front of people's mind, don't pay any attention to President Trump. You know, don't look at what he's actually doing because there's obstruction of justice and the Russia-Trump thing. And, uh, you know, they're hoping that, that if they throw enough crap at him, that some of it will stick in time for the midterm election and maybe the general election two years later. That's all this is. This is what the left does. They've got nothing there, but they're going to continue to pound away at this thing day after day after day with the hope that something sticks. The other example that I want to give regarding a a false narrative is the business of the travel ban. Now, it should be noted that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which struck, first they struck down President Trump's travel ban, claiming that it's unconstitutional because it discriminates against Muslims and because of things that Trump, they use as proof of that, comments made by Trump during the campaign, which they claimed had some, that demonstrated that he has something against Muslims, even though I can't find anything that he said that would actually indicate that. But putting that aside, they struck this basic principle down. What is that principle? The principle is that the President of the United States, the Chief Executive Officer, the Commander-in-Chief elected to serve as such, has the, the right constitutionally, a right that has been confirmed by um, centuries by Supreme Court decisions, by the actions of presidents going all the way back to James Madison, who banned British in- infiltrators during the War of 1812, that the President of the United States has the right to decide who enters the country based upon what he or she deems to be national security interests. That is a basic function of the executive branch of office. Congress has their, has a, a, an equal right uh, to pass legislation that then could be signed by the president uh, doing the same thing. Um, in fact, if you go even further to it, this is a fundamental function of any sovereign nation, the right to decide who enters a national home. They don't have to explain why. They're elected. We elected that office. We elected our congressman. 
we elected our president to make those decisions in the interests of the nation. This is something that's been done in every, you know, by presidents going all the way back. I mean, Jimmy Carter did it. Franklin Roosevelt did it. Harry Truman did it. Uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson did it. Certainly Abraham Lincoln did it. I mean, this is what presidents do. It's part of what the executive does. And it's a right and proper thing for them to do. Someone has to do it. Um, you know, this is protecting the national home from enemies. The president has every right to decide who comes into the country and what nations are allowed to send people into the country. And the six nations on that list are nations that we do not have diplomatic relations with. You know, they're no different than North Korea. You know, these are nations that are not in a state of war with the United States, but they are, do not have formal friendship or friendly relations with the United States. There's no ambassador in, I think, in Yemen. I might be mistaken about that, but I don't believe there is. And so the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals understood that they had no grounds for making that decision. They knew that the president has the right to, to, to ban people from traveling into the country. They also knew that um, individuals who had a legitimate reason for coming into this country from those nations, they could do so simply by uh, asking for a waiver. They, they could contact the State Department. There would be an investigation, probably would be fairly brief. And if they were then cleared and vetted, then they could come to this country. You know, they could come to this country as special guests. You know, a congressman could sponsor them. You know, there are ways to do it. And there are ways to do it properly in that once they do enter, there are people in the government, elected officials, who are willing to stand up and vouch for them and take responsibility for them being here. That's something that's also been in place and is in place. So when you say, you know, nobody from North Korea or from Iran can enter the country, if a president says that, there already is in place mechanisms by which individuals can get exceptions and can get vouchers with sponsorship to enter the country. So that's part of it anyway. So the sensationalist, radicalized left, they didn't want to mention that. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals understood that they had no constitutional ground to stand on. But they did it anyways because they knew that, you know, it creates a narrative, a false narrative, that this could be used as a way to destabilize the president, galvanize the leftist support, use propaganda to say, well... You know, the president has something against this group of people because he doesn't like their race or their religion or whatever. And, you know, that that further galvanizes people. It's very irrational, actually. And then, of course, that decision to strike to strike down the president's travel ban was reinforced by a federal judge in Hawaii who had been visited the day before by former President Barack Obama who was on one of his lavish vacations there. Uh, that gets into, I mean, I, I, there's nothing illegal, but it certainly raises questions of a conflict of interest. I mean, what did Obama tell him? Because he may, may came down with us the next day. Hey, it doesn't matter what the Constitution says. It doesn't matter what the law says. We need to just keep this thing going. 
it keeps in the news how evil Trump is. It, it hampers Trump. Now, my, my proof that this is a false narrative is the fact that eventually the travel ban has worked its way into the Supreme Court. And while the Supreme Court will be making a final ruling on it sometime in the fall, they just made a ruling essentially allowing the travel ban to go forward in the meantime. And that ruling was supported unanimously by all the judges, including the most liberal judges like like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan and all the rest. It was unanimous because that's what the Constitution says, that as judges, ultimately, they have to uphold the the Constitution. I mean, it's, I'm actually quite proud of the fact they did because I wouldn't expect that from them. Anyway, I'm going to do a brief public service announcement here. Um, let's see, the public service announcement book <laughs> is in front of me, so I'm actually going to be able to read one. Um, let's see, numbers to think about. U.S. healthcare. Some healthcare numbers to think about. One percent of the U.S. population accounts for 22 percent of total healthcare spending, and the top five percent accounts for 50 percent. Hmm. Analyzed from a slightly different perspective, if Americans are divided into two groups, the healthier half uses just three percent of all healthcare. Get healthcare, in other words. Let's see. Know your cell phone rights. Whether you're taking your cell phone with you on a walk, in your car, or in a civil protest. And it's just a thing that you can actually keep on your keychain. So if you have had a drink or two, you, you can test your own breath and see if you're, you're at the legal limit before driving. And um, I would urge you if, you, if you are going to go out and drink... To uh, to not drive, but but use Uber. I mean, I drive Uber. It's not expensive. It has cut down on drunk driving. You can go out and have a nice time, relax, have fun. Hopefully, you don't drink too much. But if you are going to drink a, a, a little, I mean, we're we're. I'm talking here to adults, and I'm not saying do, but you know, if it happens. You don't have to worry about your car. You don't have to worry about parking. You don't have to worry about driving. You don't have to worry about all these things that, that, that put people at risk and yourself at risk and that cause stress. You can just relax and have a good time. So, uh, And having said that, let me finish the public service segment by saying, please don't drink too much, uh, especially if you're younger. You know, your bodies and your minds are not yet fully developed. That's just a fact. If you're under 21, even if you're under 25, you are not a fully developed adult yet. And your body and your mind cannot fully handle the effects of a controlled substance like alcohol, let alone drugs, which, which, which tells you that you have to be, you know, you have to be careful. Look, at I'm older, so, you know, I can drink a beer or two, and it doesn't have a big effect on me. But when you're 18, when you're 20, it has a much bigger effect because, again, you're not fully developed yet. 
and you don't really know your limits as well. So you may drink more than you should and, and not know how to stop, when to stop. Um, you know, especially if you're a girl, frankly, a woman. Uh, please be careful with that. You know, and, and if you're a woman, and I, I'm sorry to have to say this, and I, it's, this is certainly not in anything remotely to do with something that's sexist because it's just observing a fact. The fact is that in our society and in any society, women are more vulnerable to being attacked, maybe sexually, maybe otherwise, than are men. It's just a fact. And so if you're going to go out and have a good time, and if you want to have a drink or two, I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying do. Um, but, but I would hopefully, I would advise you to stick with your friends who you went with. Don't go alone. Go with friends. Stay with those friends. Leave with those friends. Get into an Uber. Go home safely. And just practice good, common safety. I'm a big fan, for example, particularly with women, of taking this course called Model Mugging. Uh, you know, my own daughter took the course. My wife took the course. Will you learn how to fight? You'll learn a little bit about martial arts. If somebody attacks you, if somebody approaches you, you learn how to handle them. That's not a bad thing to do, you know, to have a little street smarts. But, again, stay with other people. Don't go alone. You know, if you meet someone who you think might be interesting for you romantically, you, you know, I, I mean, I know here I sound like an old fuddy. You know, like maybe I sound Victorian here. But I'm going to say it anyway. Don't give yourself away. Don't cheapen yourself. Respect yourself. Respect your body. Respect your soul. You use common sense. I understand, you know, sexual attractions. I understand all of that. Believe me, we all do. That's part of the human condition, okay? Everyone has their temptations. And yes, you want to fit in. You want to be one of the cool people. You want to be, you don't want to have someone mad at you. You don't want to have any, you don't want to cause a scene. You know, there, there are social pressures, to maybe get too involved too quickly. Maybe even go home with someone. Uh, you know, this is, again, this is part of my public service statement here. And I'm speaking as a father, I know that, of a daughter. Um, but, but I would ask you, don't go home with them. Don't, don't do it, you know. Um, get to know them. Have a nice time at the club or wherever you are. Maybe get to know the person personally a little bit. And then take down their phone number, take down their email, take down their text, whatever it is you do. And, and, and say goodnight to them. Maybe give them a little peck on the cheek at best. And then if you want to pursue it, meet them later. You know, contact them. Let a day or two go by. Then contact them if you want that and meet them in a public place. You know, just give yourself a chance to to get to know them, maybe have a little courtship. And then if things lead on to other things, okay. 
you know? At least you know who this person is. It's not just, you know, let's, you know, we're not just talking about sex. Let's, let's call it what it is. You're talking about, you know, getting involved with a human being, somebody that may even become a significant part of your life. I hope they do because I don't, you know, you want to have a value to this. You know, there's a reason why um, marriage, for example, is very much wrapped up in, in faith, in religion, in the church, because it's sacred, because it's, it's a commitment of, for life to another person, to build a family. And it's not just about fidelity and, and loyalty and, and uh, monogamy. It's about, it's a business relationship. It is a professional relationship. It is a life relationship. You know, you're entering into a contract. You know, these things have a, you know, why not hold yourself up to the highest standards and look for the very best situation for yourself? I'm not against dating. I'm not against courtship. Um, You know, I have problems with premarital sex. I don't think it's a good idea necessarily. But look, I'm not, you know, I'm no great in that area, great, some great power. I'm not holding myself up as some paragon of virtue, so I, I'm not going to lecture about it. But uh, just, you know, use, use common sense and use good judgment. Anyway, you're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, my latest column. I talked about the false narratives. The two that I've given, the two examples, are the phony Trump-Russia narrative and also the uh, the phony travel ban, which we now know was not constitutional for to ban it, and uh, you know, but it was done just to stop Trump. It was to slow down the government to create this false um, false imagery. Um, I suppose the third one is the attack on um, those who are trying to repeal Obamacare, and I talk about this a bit in my latest column. Um, which is, um, you can read it on Newsmax. And I'm not suggesting you go there, and this is not something that I, it's not a business. I don't get paid to write these columns, so I'm not trying to, you know, this is not, a, and this isn't a promotion for a business. Um, the column is called, People Will Die If Obamacare is Left Intact. Now, I know this runs against the hysterical narrative that I've been listening to from the left that people will die if we get rid of Obamacare. That's nonsense. People die from socialized medicine. All right? And that's what Obamacare is all about. It's the, it's the first step towards socialized medicine. And in that system, people die. A lot of people die. And they know this. Why do they die? Because if the government runs it, it's going to be rationed. And if it's rationed, that means the government decides who lives and who dies, ultimately. Whose life is worth living and whose isn't. This is what the socialists who ran Nazi socialist Germany were all about. You know, they actually had terms for this. The life worth living. What uh, life is best for the, for the benefit of the state? You know, don't forget, when you take God out of the question, when you take... Uh, creation out of the question you know you have basically human beings who are nothing more than you know objects they're a bag of 
you know, there's just a bag of bones and blood. And so the all-knowing state, which gets to run health care and decide who gets to have health care, they're going to take a look at what value you have. If you're too old, if you're too sick, if you're not politically correct, you know, they'll let you go. If you have infirmities, if you're maybe physically or mentally disabled, they'll let you go. You don't think so? Look, I mean, the very best examples of socialized health care, the ones that the left always touts as what the United States should do, are the, that in Great Britain and Canada. And I think that if you take a look at those two systems, you're going to find that the statistics that they keep with regard to their health care are skewed at best. Uh, because what they don't report are the number of people who have died because either they had to wait too long to get treated or because of rationing of treatment. It was deemed by some committee that they wouldn't get the treatment or they would just get a little treatment because the committee needs to save money. If the government is running it as a nonprofit, the way they raise the money to do it is through taxes, and there's just so much they can tax. So they ration it. This is the way nationalized health care works. That is a fact. There is no example that would otherwise indicate. That is just how it happens. The government rations the health care. The Canadian system, for example, decided that certain painkillers for pregnant women would not be allowed because it was too expensive. You know, there's a waiting list. The doctor has to be approved. If the doctor in a nationalized health care system does something that is off of the rule book, rules that are made by some bureaucrats who aren't doctors necessarily, then that doctor could be fined. That doctor could be, would be seen as technically in violation of the law. There is no freedom in that system. There is no creativity in that system. There's very little room for experimentation. You know, healthcare is a science. And when you have a science, you need freedom to inquire and to learn and to study. When you have a nationalized system where the government is running it, you don't have that or you have it very limited. So I'll ask you, if you, God forbid, have to go to the hospital because of a catastrophic situation, your body is on fire, you've got cancer, you're having a heart attack, you know, you're, everything is falling apart, and you have to go to the hospital, you have to be, you need emergency care. Which would you rather have? Your own insurance or the federal government or state government deciding what you're going to get, okay? Just ask yourself that. Now, like any other business, insurance is not perfect. There are crooks in the insurance industry, of course, just like there are crooks in all industries, just like there are crooks, frankly, in government where they have the monopoly power to be dishonest without you opposing them. But in the free market, of course there are crooks. And yeah, there are bad practices. And I'm not against regulation. 
I think the states should regulate insurance. They should make sure that, you know, the insurance companies have enough reserve equity to cover um, their members in, in the eventuality of a, of a catastrophe at all times. Those are things that can be regulated. There's nothing wrong with insurance companies keeping someone on the policy until they're 25, 26 years old, if that's what they want to do. If someone wants that, they should be able to get that. I mean, I don't think you need the federal government to mandate it. I just think that if, if it's something people should have access to. Catastrophic illness. You're denied insurance because you have a catastrophic illness. Okay. I would argue, and I think this has been proposed for, for, for many decades, that in cases like that, the states set aside a, um, a secondary insurance company that receives some funding from the state, maybe federal as well, by which you can then apply for the secondary insurance you know, that, that insures hardcore cases like that, and that uh, the insurance companies have to kick in about maybe 5% of their premiums to this secondary company to maintain it that you have to pay a premium just like you would pay your regular insurance company. If you're indigent, if you're poor, then perhaps the, the payments can be adjusted to suit your income or the government could subsidize it completely. You know, that's called Medicaid, by the way. Um, but, but, you know, the secondary insurance will cover your costs. I think we want that. Nobody wants people to die. If you can be treated... We want you to be treated, even if it costs a million dollars a year. We want you to be treated the best you can. You know, we in America value life. That's why our insurance companies are high. That's uh, our costs are high. That's why, you know, our healthcare system is so good because Americans do value life more than other countries, more than Canada, more than Great Britain, where they don't really, uh, you know, they there. It's time to go. Let them go. We want you to live as long as possible. We want you to be as independent as long as possible. Your life is worth living. You know, we want every life is worth living. There's no life in, in, under God that is expendable. That's been the American ethos. That's something we should support. If you have nationalized health care, that's going to go. They're going to let older people go. You know, the, um, you know that, that was kind of admitted during the Obamacare debates. Um. And that's because it'll be rationed. I mean, they're going to take a look at your, what they call the, the, the I forget, the Corey score. Some, some, uh, you know, some committee. And if your Corey score isn't very high, you're not going to get health care under the, under the uh, Obamacare system. You're going to die. People already have. Now, that doesn't mean that the insurance company is going to cover everything. But I think it's safe to say that you're more likely to get the coverage you need from an insurance company. If you have an insurance company through your job, you have an insurance policy, and you have a boss, and you go out sick, that insurance company is more likely to give you full coverage until you recover, especially if your boss intervenes. And if you have people at the company who's, who back you up, then you would, if you are on 
federal-run insurance, including Medicare, by the way, which is not so great. You know, it's rationed. It's limited. You know, if you're on, on a government-run insurance and you're in the hospital with a dread illness, you're not going to live, likely. You're probably going to die. You're more likely to die because you won't get covered. So when the left starts wailing about people losing their insurance and, and that people are going to die, this is just another false narrative. Trying to get rid of a, of a big authoritarian government program is something that is very, very difficult because when you start giving away stuff, or at least people think they're getting something, it's very difficult to say we're not going to do this anymore. But the fact is that with Obamacare, most people who are on the exchanges or who have insurance from post uh, after the post-2010, they're not getting insurance. They have deductibles that are as high as $5,000. They have premiums that are as high as $5,000. What that means is that by the time you get to your insurance, after spending $5,000 in premiums and $5,000 in deductibles, it's going to cost you $10,000 before you can get a lousy flu shot, is what that means. Is that insurance? Most people don't have that kind of money. I don't, you know, I, I can't cough up $10,000. You know, this is not insured. You're not insured. If you have private insurance, you can choose your level of deductible. You can choose your premiums based upon your coverage and what you can afford. And you will get catastrophic coverage as part of any policy. If the left wing cared so much about saving lives, why, do they, why don't they support lifting the cap on private insurance accounts, PSAs. That's when you and your employer, or if you're self-employed, you personally, put a contribution into a PSA, tax deductible, into an account that earns interest and that you can draw from to exclusively use for health insurance, for health needs. You can use a portion of that money, and in fact, I think it could be mandated, to purchase a catastrophic illness insurance um, policy. You can purchase other policies as well, as long as they're approved as health insurance policies. The money is then earmarked. If you go to the doctor, you can use your PSA to pay your bill, to pay your copay. You know, it's a free market means by which you will then be in a position where you actually will be concerned about the cost of things and you will shop around to find the best cost if you're interest, if that's your if that's your your interest and by doing so you're going to lower the cost of healthcare because insurance because hospitals and healthcare providers will have to compete on the open market they won't have this you know they're making money hand over fist because you don't see how much things cost you just know it's covered so you get whatever you need but these things cost a lot of money and there's a lot of graft why do you think hospitals are building these huge towers? I mean, they've got a lot of extra fat. Let them compete in the open market. Let go, let's go back to the doctor with his black case going and making house calls. The relationship between the patient and the doctor should be as sacred as the relationship between a person and the priest or a person and their lawyer. It's private. It's personal. 
and it's confidential. Let's go back to that. It's a better modality. If the left wing was so concerned about health care, why don't they allow for cross-state competition by insurance companies? Why, do not, why don't they allow for the importation of drugs from other countries? Why don't they allow for the creation of more generic drugs? Why don't they allow for a reform of some of these big agencies, which are important agencies like the Food and Drug Administration, to make it a little bit easier to bring drugs onto the market? Why don't they stand up for tort reform? Uh, you know, these malpractice lawsuits which are driving up the cost of medicine. Now, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have malpractice. But the costs are so prohibitive and it's become so easy to sue for malpractice that doctors have to buy these insurance policies that drive up the cost of health care. And guess who the lawyers are? Who advocate for this? Guess who the trial lawyers are and the entire lawyer industry is? They're mostly liberals who are advocates of Obamacare. That's who they are because they make a buck from it. That's why they've been given an exemption. They're a special interest. They support Democrats and thus Democrats look the other way when it comes to such questions as, as uh, you know, litigation reform or tort reform. They don't want to do that. I mean, these are things that will drive down the cost of health care. These are things that will drive down the cost of premiums. If you take these super expensive cases, by the way, off the books of the insurance companies by having them be insured through a secondary insurance company, that gets a combination of monies from the insurance companies, from private uh, you know, people who purchase the policies and from the government then insurance premiums are going to come down because they won't have to cover these expensive cases. That's how insurance premiums work. That's why insurance premiums are higher. And finally, because we're reaching the end of the program, we have to get rid of these mandates. They are mandating everything from boob jobs to, to uh, you know, sex change operations and all the rest. Now, if people want that, they should be able to buy it as part of their policies. It's called a rider. But if you mandate it, then it, everyone has to pay for it. And the insurance companies, by the way, make a fortune from that. I mean, the insurance companies in 2000 and I think it was eight, they made something like $30 million from, from sex change insurance when, in fact, they only had to shell out a couple of hundred thousand. They made a fortune. Anyway, we're reaching the end of the program. Chuck Morse here. <laughs> 